Well, let me say a prayer for the message, and then we'll get started. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to talk about Sabbath, talk about Jesus' perspective on the Sabbath. Uh, Would Jesus speak to us in our hearts here today? Um, And would we be moved by you, God, in whatever way you want us to be moved? Uh, It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever spoiled something good with bad rules? Spoiled something good with bad rules. A couple years ago, Monica and I were on vacation, and we went by the local store, and we picked up a copy of the board game Monopoly. You can see where this is going. Now, we played a couple rounds of Monopoly together, And it's fair to say that I won every single one of them. And now, today, when she describes how I play Monopoly uh, to friends, she always says, you don't want to play with Jonathan. He has crazy rules. And I think that's nonsense, because I have really good rules. Uh, For example, if you land on one of my properties and you cannot pay it back, I will give you a pass for two, I'll give you a pass that round, but then if I land on one of your properties for the next two or three rounds, I don't owe you anything. And see, what this does is it it extends my win even longer. It kind of drags out the game so that I can enjoy the win for at least an hour or two more. (laughs) That makes sense, right? I'm just offering them derivatives and futures contracts, which resulted in our modern recession, our most recent one. I don't think that's so crazy. (laughs) Have you ever spoiled something good with bad rules? Now, to me, I seem generous, loving, but to Monica, not so fun, not so unkind. We, We can spoil really good things with really quite bad rules. Maybe uh, you've ruined a friendship or a relationship because you came at them with all these expectations, all these rules of things that they needed to do. They didn't measure up to your expectations, and suddenly that friendship was breaking. Maybe you've run into bad policies or procedures at your office, and you don't like, know why they're there. No one knows why they're there, but you still have to abide by them. Uh, and it slows down the workplace. Sometimes there's many good rules, but uh, that's one, perhaps. Maybe you had a, a beautiful relationship with God, But then you started to add different rules, things you could and could not do that weren't a part of the Bible to your relationship with God. And suddenly, things started to get spoiled. Your house rules were different than God's house rules, and it just didn't work. Well, today, we're looking at a story of well-meaning religious people creating a list of rules about the Sabbath, about Sabbath rest, and how ultimately that actually ended up hurting Sabbath rest and hindering it, not truly blessing us and blessing the disciples in that setting. Now, Israel's Sabbath, the nation of Israel, they had a Sabbath that lasted from Friday evening until Saturday evening. And on it, they were not supposed to do work. They were supposed to uh, worship God. Modern uh, Jews, we see them go to the synagogue uh, And when I talk about Sabbath for us as Christians in our culture, I mean one day in seven that we set apart to rest, to worship God, to relax, to play, uh, and to get to know God better. 
So the Pharisees, they, they were kind of the religious elite, and they, uh, in our story, ended up ruining the Sabbath, or at least trying to ruin it unintentionally uh, with some bad rules. Verses 23 and 24 say this, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Religious regulations have a way of spoiling life. The, if I were to compare kind of the, the Pharisees, they're, they're kind of like, I don't know, modern-day pastors, teachers, the religious elite. They, they had all the right ethics. They had all the right answers. Uh, I was kind of thinking they were like the Jedi and that they were holy men this week just because of that new trailer, but you can ignore that. Uh, and in, in Mark chapter 2, earlier in the chapter, we see in verses 13 through 17, we see Jesus doing something really interesting. Now, I'm not going to read it, but what we see Jesus doing is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And tax collectors and sinners were those that were not religious elite people. They were, they were kind of the people that everyone, that all of culture looked down upon. They weren't the, the ethically best. And so when the, when the Pharisees uh, saw that Jesus was hanging out with them instead of, instead of themselves, there would have been some jealousy. See, Jesus was a new rabbi, and he was a new teacher, and he was not schooled. He was not formally educated like many of those Pharisees would have been. And so when Jesus came to town as the new teacher, the, the Pharisees would have expected Jesus to come and to kind of appease them. To come and say, you know, here I, I'm submissive to you all. I want, you know, my ministry to be blessed, to have your blessing. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes to the tax collectors, to the sinners, to the down and out, to the broken. And he hangs out with them first. And so the Pharisees come along and they try to control Jesus. They say, ah, well then we're going to prove that we're smarter than you, that we're better than you, that we have all the right uh, beliefs, that we have all the right rules, that we're more righteous than you. And one of the ways they do that is by following him through a grain field and looking for him to blow it on the Sabbath day. And according to them, they do. So Exodus 34, 21 is what the Pharisees are referring to when they say, you know, your disciples are picking heads of grain, and therefore you're breaking the Sabbath. Exodus 34, 21 says this. It says, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and the harvest, you must rest. So what they're saying is, well, your, your disciples are harvesting. They're picking up kind of these heads of grain, and they're eating them. But a harvest is nothing like this. A harvest is when you take the sickles out to the field, and you spend all day kind of getting the wheat, putting it together, getting ready to take it to market. It's strenuous work. It's sweaty work. It's like uh, in our modern environment when all the combines go out into the big fields and, and bring in the harvest. That's what a harvest is. A harvest is not picking up grains of head off wheat. So not only is it sort of um, kind of making a big deal out of something that's small, but actually Jesus is right that according to the law, the disciples were allowed. They were not stealing. They weren't doing anything wrong. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says this. So this is the Old Testament law again. It says, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. 
So it was okay to go along and take, uh, you know, a little bit of this, uh, this fruit, uh, fruit wheat, fruit grain. So notice what they did there. They took something that was small and made it into something that was big. I listened to a message by Alistair Begg this week. He's kind of, uh, I think he's Welsh or Irish. He's, he has an accent, and he's a lot of fun to listen to. And he, he preached on this passage, and he kind of made the modern comparison that if he were out golfing, he would be allowed to eat from the raspberry bushes alongside the golf course, but he would not be allowed to take a chainsaw to those raspberry bushes and harvest them. I don't know why you would take a chainsaw raspberry bushes, but uh, that was kind of the, the modern illustration he used. Have you ever heard that expression, making a mountain out of a molehill? That's what's occurring right here, and it seems like religious people have a really uh, a natural way of doing this, and we see that here among the religious elite. See, the, the Pharisees are professional legalists. They care about the law. They want to follow every little jot and tittle to the nth degree. They never want to break any sort of ordinance or anything at all. They've reduced belief in God to a list of do's and do nots. And it's not healthy. Mark Buchanan, in our book that I recommended to you called The Rest of God, which dives deeper into this Sabbath concept, uh, he says this. He says, legalism is the reduction of life to mere technicalities. That spoke to me. See, we can ruin religion, we can ruin life by creating all these lists of things we can and cannot do. See, the natural response to a sermon series, so uh, two weeks ago on Easter, I started uh, the sermon series on Sabbath and how to rest, Sabbath and simplicity, and the natural response to a series like this one is to kind of go home and say, all right, Let's create a whole bunch of rules for how we can make sure that we are resting on the Sabbath day, that we are taking time off. We're going to make sure that we do good things, that we read the Bible together as a family, that we pray together as a family, that we don't watch TV. Or if we do watch TV, like football is acceptable, but Netflix is not. Uh, Amazon Prime is off limits, but uh, you know any sort of sports or golf, we can watch that. Uh, mom can't cook. You know, that's not such a bad rule. Uh, we're going to go to the restaurant and get some food. Uh, we, Dad can't go to the gym because we know he's just dying to do that. In fact, we can't do anything fun. We can't even play Monopoly because we have to be silent. We have to be religious. We have to be spiritual. And that's not what Jesus is advising about the Sabbath day. It's not what it is about. I had a friend uh, growing up who, I guess they, they were very hard about taking a Sabbath day, and he couldn't play computer games on the Sabbath, and uh, they celebrated a Sabbath as Saturday, and, uh, and I, I believe it was kind of just like you sat around being quiet. <laughs> For a, like a young teenage boy, I imagine this must have been pretty hard. See, when Sabbath becomes, uh, when Sabbath rest becomes about what we can't do more than what we can do, then we've missed the point. If Sabbath rest is about this long list of do nots, and not about the rest that we can have, then we've got it wrong. Religious regulations have a way of spoiling life. The Pharisees ruined Sabbath rest with their list of bad rules. 
Now, we treat Sabbath as a list of rules when we're scared. So maybe you know the history of Israel. If you read the whole Bible, you kind of get this, this, this history that about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, the nation of Israel was taken into exile. That means a foreign nation came and took them away, uh, kind of in chains, and, and took them to their populace. This was the, the Babylonian Empire. They came and they took Israel away. And one of the reasons that they did this was it was an act of God. It was God's judgment upon the nation of Israel for disobeying him, for not protecting orphans and widows, for not um, respecting the Sabbath. And so when they got back from Babylon, you can imagine the natural response is fear. Well, we never want that to happen to us again. And so what they did was they created extra rules, extra laws all around God's law so that, you know, if, if you never got to... If you never even got close to breaking God's law, then we would be fine. They called this the oral law, and it was written down about 200 years after Jesus, A.D. 200, uh, as the Mishnah. So imagine if we had a fence around this property, and then buildings and grounds decided to dig a moat around the fence and then fill that moat with water and alligators and pythons. That is kind of like what the oral law was. You didn't want to even get close to, to breaking God's law, to stepping on holy ground. But ironically, in their zeal to protect God's word, they actually end up breaking some of their own laws, some of their own rules that they had created. One of the oral laws was that on the Sabbath, you could not walk further than 1,999 paces, because then it was considered work. So that's about 800 meters and what do we see them doing? We see them walking through the grain field after Jesus. They, they end up breaking uh, kind of their own law and in order to protect God's law. It's kind of silly. So the lesson here is don't be afraid of Sabbath rest. Don't, don't, don't approach that day of setting aside for God, setting aside that day for God. Don't approach it out of fear. Like, I have to do this or God will be mad with me. Approach it as a gift. Approach it as kind of a weekly birthday. Maybe some people approach their birthdays in fear. But, I, but you want to approach it as excitement. Of Here's this exciting time that I can receive gifts and be blessed. That's how we want to approach Sabbath rest. Jesus tells us that Sabbath rest is for our good. So Jesus does this by telling the story of Israel's most famous monarch. Andy introduced King David for us a little bit earlier, but verses 25 through 26 say this. Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions." So David wasn't born king. He was born a shepherd. And uh, through his history, uh, God said, I, I want David to be king. Uh, but at the time, there was another king on the throne. And he was not a good king. He was a bad king. His name was Saul. And Saul ends up pursuing David, uh, going after him in order to kill him. And David and his men kind of seek refuge at the tabernacle, at the, at the holy tent, looking for nourishment. Uh, and David asked them, well, do you have any food? Do you have any bread? 
And the high priest uh, at the time was Ahimelech, so it was Abiathar's father. Uh, he asks him for food in 1 Samuel chapter 21, so if you want to read it later. And this priest says, well, I don't really have much, but you can have the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence, I brought a picture. This is a, a, mo- a model. It's not uh, you know, accurate. I think this is in the Middle East. You can go and visit this. Uh, but the bread of the presence was on a table, and it was inside the holy place. So the tabernacle was kind of like uh, the precursor to the temple. And there was a holy place, and there was the most holy place. And this was in the holy place. And so it was kind of symbolically and in a real tangible way in God's presence all the time. And so it was kind of this sacred bread that only the priests were supposed to eat. It was holy bread. So Jesus is asking, he's saying, well, if David, if he ate sacred bread, sacred food when in need, how come my men, my disciples can't eat on a sacred day? If King David can eat holy bread, Jesus' disciples can eat grains, can eat heads of grains. It's, it's that simple. That's the point. And see, what Jesus is showing us in a real way is that the God of Christianity is not impressed with religious rituals. He cares about real people and real needs. That's the God that we believe in as a church. In fact, our God cares about us so much that he gives us a day each week to rest, a weekly Sabbath. Verse 27 says this, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath is is for, for you and me, a Sabbath, a day of rest. This is why we can't create a list of things that we can and cannot do on that day of rest because the Bible doesn't allow it and and we all have different needs. We all enter into rest in different ways and refreshment. So for me, I work here in the office during the week, and I, I kind of you know, dive into the, the text and study it and maybe do some translation, what, what we would call exegesis. I should not do that on my day of rest. But maybe you, uh, you're so busy during the week that the only time you have to really dive into God's word super deep and maybe you can translate using different websites, well, maybe the weekend is the best time for you to do that. And that's okay. How about if some of you were to do like heavy landscaping and heavy manual labor during the week? Well, when you get to your day of rest, you probably shouldn't do landscaping in your own yard and heavy lifting. Now, what if on the opposite end, which I think what we have more of here is you sit at your desk all week and you're, you're kind of a little lethargic and you look forward to the weekend when you can get out and you can mow the lawn and do some gardening. Like, that's okay. See, the principle here is not what we can and cannot do. It's, it's, it's breaking the pattern of what we usually do and doing something that gives us joy, gives us rest, and directs our hearts and directs our minds towards God. I hope that makes sense. It's more of a principle than a list. Jesus tells us that Sabbath rest is for our good. And notice that in our passage, Jesus is also kind of claiming the right to tell us to stop. (laughs) 
Jesus is, is saying, I have the authority to say that you should take time off, that you should, you should rest. It says, verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I am in charge of the Sabbath, not you and all of your religious rituals and rules. I am. Now, what is this phrase, a son of man? Well, a son of man is a, an Old Testament title. So it's, from, it's first found in the book of Daniel, and it is a, what we would call a messianic title. So the Messiah to the, the Jewish people uh, was this figure that was supposed to come and bring deliverance. And Jesus is claiming to be that figure. Uh, we learned in our uh, Introduction to Jesus class that uh, Messiah means God's only chosen king. Jesus is claiming to be God's only chosen king. So Daniel 7, 13, verse, uh, yeah, verse 13 uh, is where we see the, the, kind of the, the, the most important example of son of man used in the Old Testament. It says, in my vision at night, this is Daniel speaking, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. If you read the next verse, in verse 14, it talks about the son of man being given all dominion, all authority, all power over everything. See, when Jesus says, I'm the son of man and I have authority over the Sabbath, he's saying, I am God's chosen representative and it's, it's my right to say what can and cannot take place on this day of rest. And it's also a divine title. See, Jesus is not only claiming to be the chosen king, he's also claiming to be God, to fellowship in a unique way with the most holy of holies, with the ancient of days. See, Jesus is claiming that he actually created Sabbath. That's pretty cool what he is doing here. But there's also, there's also a third reference which kind of goes back to the messianic title. And it's that Jesus brings up King David here. In other places in the New Testament, Jesus is called a son of David. See, Jesus, when he refers to David, is saying, I am greater than David and I am a descendant of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, God makes King David... Once, a, once he kind of uh, became king and no longer had the, the issue with Saul, God made him into, to be the king. And then God comes along and says, you know, I'm going to put on your throne uh, a king that will sit there forever and ever. The, kind of the final king. And Jesus is claiming to be that final king who's a ruler but gracious, who rules over the universe has the greatest kingdom of them all, and invites people like you and me to come and rest in his kingdom. He's not a dictator, but he's a generous Lord that says, come, come. I invite you, come and rest with me. Have you ever been invited to someone's home uh, that was just, it was like, Maybe they're almost in a different social class than you. Uh, I know we don't really have like, social classes in America as much. Uh, but in my hometown where I grew up, Estes Park, Colorado, there was, you know, nice parts of town. But then there was also Gray Fox Estates, all right? So that's like, that's like the really ritzy part of town. And I really enjoyed going there to see our Awana director. So uh, the parent church of Cornerstone Emanuel does a program called Awana, and it's, it's national. And the director of our little um, branch of Awana, he lived there, 
And we would go and see his house, and he had a great big kitchen, a great big living room, and an underground um, gym underneath his house where you could play and hang out. Uh, it was really cool, and it was like almost an honor to go there to that house. Maybe you've been to one similar where you know they have a koi pond and a green lawn and big TVs, and it's, it's a fun to just walk into the presence, and you feel honored just to be there. Well, we follow Jesus, who is the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords, and he is the Lord of the universe. Everything in creation belongs to Jesus, and he is inviting you and me to enter into his rest, to come and put up our feet and relax one day of the week. How honoring is that? How exciting is that? See, Jesus tells us that Sabbath rest is for our good, but in this next passage, he shows it. He shows it that it is for our good and also for the good of others. Verses 1 through 6 say this. Another time, Jesus was in the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus enters a synagogue. A synagogue is like a church. Uh, It's kind of the predecessor of churches, uh, but in ancient Israel. And he publicly goes about healing a man with a shriveled hand. This is a very powerful story. This week I was at a local hospital that has just advanced medicine, advanced technology. I think it has a a kind of a cancer unit, and they do a lot of really good treatment, a lot of really good work. This is just uh, an amazing place. And I I had to visit it for, it was like a chaplaincy luncheon, and they're inviting local ministers in the area to kind of network with them. Uh, But when I went there, I didn't know my way around. I'd never been to this hospital. And so I went up to the Welcome Center, to the desk, and I met a very helpful woman, and she directed me on my way. But later I was struck because uh, this woman, not to make light of her at all, but she had deformed hands. And here she was serving and volunteering and working at one of the most advanced technological and just scientific establishments in the region that we've come so far But even in 2,000 years, we have not created the medicine and the science to heal someone's hands, and Jesus did it. Jesus did it by just speaking. That's the kind of uh, God we believe in. He's amazing. And Jesus uses this powerful image to show us that Sabbath rest is for our good and for the good of others. The story of this man with the shriveled hands isn't so different from you and from me. He has needs. He's broken. Uh, the Others can tell that he's broken, that he has needs, and he can't do anything about those needs. That's just like us. 
But Jesus actually, in our passage, is pointing out that his real problem is not just the physical brokenness. That is one of Jesus' concerns. But the primary focus of Jesus, his primary concern is a spiritual brokenness, is a spiritual need. We can tell this by how Jesus goes about dealing with the problem. You see, he goes about dealing with the physical problem, but he says, get up, stand up in front of everyone, stand up in the middle. See, he's asking this man to, to express faith in Jesus in a really hard way. See, to get up in front of these religious leaders that didn't like Jesus would have been incredibly intimidating. It would have been like uh, being in a kind of a pack of wolves. His livelihood, his family, his standing at the temple, all of these things would have come under threat. And Jesus is saying, do you believe in the rules? <laughs> do you believe in the regulations or do you believe in me? Do you trust me? And the man gets up. Now notice that Mark, the author of our, our book and our passage that we're studying today, he is painting a picture. He is painting a kind of a contrast, a light versus dark picture. He takes the man who has a shriveled body and he compares them, him to the men with fine bodies, with the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And see, Jesus goes about saying, you know, he gets mad, he gets angry, and he says, he looked around, around him in anger, and he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. See, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they look fine on the outside, but on the inside, they have shriveled hearts. But the man who has a shriveled hand, he has something on the inside that's different. He has God working on him. He has a soft heart. These are the two differences. The Pharisees, like I said, they were the religious elite, but the, the Herodians, they were, they were like a social class. Maybe they were nominal kind of Jews uh, because they put their trust in the local politician. So they were more interested in politics than they were in God. They aligned themselves with King Herod. And so we have these two very different uh, kind of organizations, people groups coming together to oppose Jesus. And Jesus is saying, don't be like either of them. Be like the man who stood up, who stood up in the middle, who, who when anyone looked at him on the outside, they would have said, this, this person has no possibility of honoring God. This person has nothing for him in the future. This person must be a sinner because he's broken. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to deal with that problem and I'm going to make him whole See, Jesus is showing something. He's showing that the Sabbath, that Sabbath rest is for our good. But he's also showing us a deeper truth, that you can only experience true Sabbath rest, true spiritual rest through Jesus. That if you reject Jesus, then you'll end up like those Pharisees and those Herodians. It doesn't matter whether you're an ultra-conservative religious person or uh, perhaps more of a, a liberal social believer. If you reject Jesus, you reject true Sabbath rest. It says that they went away and they plotted to kill him. Sabbath rest is only made possible through a Sabbath Savior, through Jesus Christ. The Pharisees reject Jesus, and so they reject true Sabbath rest. But that doesn't have to be you. That doesn't have to be me. Jesus was distressed. 
He didn't like that they had stubborn hearts. He didn't like that they hardened their hearts. We don't, as Christians, like the good news of Christianity is that we don't have to be religious Pharisees. We can be broken people. We can admit that we're sinners and we need Jesus to come and to transform us and to make us whole. Jesus came to save sinners, not righteous people. He takes shriveled men and women and heals them and makes them whole. Be a shriveled man or woman who needs Jesus and who receives him. The interesting thing is that the Pharisees and the Herodians, they go away and they actually succeed in their mission. It says they went away to kill Jesus. See, our passage is pointing to the most important event in all of history. It's pointing to the cross. Because it reminds us that Jesus won our spiritual rest through the cross. See, everyone is born in something called sin. Sin is just being broken before God. It's disobeying God and it's not being able to obey him even if you want to. That's what sin is. And when Jesus went to the cross, he dealt with that sin. He said, all right, I'm going to take the punishment for all of your sin. And if you'll put my faith in me, if you'll trust in me, if you will stand up in the middle, if you will stand up and say, I believe in Christ, I will take away your sin. And I will make you whole. I will give you a new heart. I will give you my holiness, my righteousness, but also my wholeness. I will give you my joy. I will give you my life. I'll take your sins and brokenness and they will be completely gone because you will be a new creation just like this man whose hand is stretched out and he is made whole again. That, that can be us spiritually. And one day when Christ returns, that will be us physically as well. Jesus heals hard hearts so that in him the restless can find rest. See, we take a weekly Sabbath, we take a, a weekly day off to remember Jesus. This is, this is ultimately the reason why we can't come up with a kind of house rules for how to treat the Sabbath. It's because ultimately the Sabbath is about getting to know Christ. It's about a person. It's not about a ritual. Sabbath rest is for our good and for the good of others. Now, in the rest of God in this book, one more quote from them. He quotes J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings, and there's, this is a trilogy with hobbits and elves and dwarves. It's really quite cool. And in this story, the hobbits, they're kind of the heroes of the story, the unlikely heroes, kind of the, the, the broken people who, who get taken out of their homeland and, and set off on this amazing quest and journey. They're surrounded by terrible events. It's kind of like the apocalypse. There's this orc army. It's terrible. But on this quest, they end up going to Rivendell, which is the land of the elves. It's, uh, it's kind of, it's like... Eden. It's a picture of Eden. And to us, it's a picture of Sabbath rest. Here's a quote from them. It says, For a while the hobbits continued to talk and think of a past journey and the perils that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. This is a picture of Sabbath rest. And we can only experience this Sabbath rest if our, if our Savior, Christ Jesus, our Sabbath Savior, leads us to Rivendell, to leads us home. A Sabbath day is when you and I don't worry about 
breaking rules and getting stuff done. We're just simply refreshed. And we recapture the joy so that we can walk through the next week with Jesus instead of apart from him. Sabbath rest is for our good. It's also for the good of others. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for giving us such freedom, such liberty as we approach a day of rest. Would you truly nourish us and refresh us in whatever day uh, we set aside to honor you? It's in your name we pray. Amen.